innovation in education. I'm your host, David Adams, CEO of the Urban Assembly. And on this show, we bring guests every single episode who have made things work in public education. This show is about the innovators. This show is about the folks who are solving problems. This show is about making things work in education. Now, there's a lot of shows out there talking about what's wrong in the education systems, and those are great shows. There's some shows talking about what we're not doing well, and there's a lot to learn from those, but that's not this show. This show is going to be featuring educators who are making things work for young people and improving public education. Well, I'm so excited to be here today on Innovations in Education with David Adams and my guest, Abby Jo Siegel. Abby Jo, welcome to our show. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Abby Jo, you are the Executive Director of the Mayor's Office of Talent and Workforce Development. For over 25 years, you've worked in various roles and types of organizations, and you are committed to revitalizing New York City's neighborhoods to better serve local residents. As the founding CEO of Here to Hear, you led a diverse group of Bronx-based teams to align key stakeholders around the goal of career success for New York City students, demonstrating best practices and translating those best practices into common practice. You're here today to talk to us about the future of work-based learning, of career-connected learning, and the role that the K-12 education can play in making that happen. So much to talk about. Excited to be here. We have this idea of career-based education. And I understand that you're the executive director of the Mayor's Office for Talent and Workforce Development. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means, what you do there, and why that's important in today's economy in 2023? Certainly. I'm the executive director of the Mayor's Office, and therefore we have lines of sight across all of city government and really thinking about how can New York City government whether you work in the Department of Education, whether you work at the Department of Housing, whether you work in the Economic Development Corporation, how can we do a better job as a city really positioning New Yorkers for career success? And so it allows us to look at the many tools that we have to really think through what can we do better to make sure that every single New Yorker is well positioned for career success and that employers have the talent that they need. And so to lead this office, you really have to come at it from the deep belief, which I believe we all should have, is that talent and the people of New York are our most important asset. We are our future. And the more we can really make sure that every single New Yorker has access to opportunity and all the supports and abilities and skills to thrive in their working life and in their career, it's not just good for each person, but it's good for our city as a whole. So I feel very privileged to have this opportunity to work across city government, but also with all the external stakeholders, such as yourself, David, but also people from industry and from unions and from all sorts of educational institutions and all the nonprofit providers. And then most importantly, the New Yorkers themselves and their families and really understanding what do they want? What do they need? And how does their passion and interest and talents, how does that overlap with the labor market so they can get paid a living wage and do what they want to do? Now, Abby Joe, speaking about working across different organizations and different departments, workforce development is hot right now. It's hot in Indiana. It's hot in New York. It's hot in Texas. And it's hot in California. What is it about 2023? That has really elevated this concept of workforce development to the heads of governors and cities and states across the country. 
Oh, I think it's not one thing. I think it's a portfolio of different things that are happening all at once. So I think one, you know, the pandemic made us all think about work really differently. We all work differently, where we went to work, how we worked, what kind of technologies we used at work really changed. So I think that's sort of top of mind and it's played out and it's continuing to play out and it will continue to do so in the future. We also are recognizing that there's a huge mismatch between the opportunities and talent. So we have a lot of people looking to hire and we have a lot of people looking for work. And it's this combination of why is that happening? And expectations are changing about what one expects from a job and what employers are expecting from talent. And so I think that's part of the conversation as well. And we've had huge numbers. I mean, just recently we had the the president and his state of the union say, you know, this administration has created more jobs than any time in the history of time. Well, it's also because we're starting in the midst of a pandemic. So we've just seen a lot of change in real time and a lot of acceleration of trends happening really fast. I think we're all just trying to absorb and figure out, okay, what does that mean? What is the new normal? And then when we're sitting in our seats, David, it's like, how do we make this new normal work well for everybody, for all students, for all New Yorkers? Well, let me take a second on that, because I feel like the consistent job reports from the U.S. government and to a certain extent in New York City, although not as robust, has been saying that we are fulfilling job demand, that unemployment is low, the labor market is robust. How does this resonate with you in terms of this need to kind of really make sure that we are matching employers to employees when it feels like we've got so many job positions that we can't even fill them as it is? So I think we have to, when we look at any kind of data, it's so important to disaggregate the data. The numbers, once you start looking at race or at gender, in New York City, the unemployment rate for Black New Yorkers is three times that of white New Yorkers. And if you look at the low-income unemployment, it's significantly high. And it was high before the pandemic, and it's even higher now. We all know the number of cents on the dollar that, that women make compared to men, and that is even lower when we're talking about women of color. So I think one is you can't just talk about the large-scale employment numbers. I think we also have to talk about, you know, quality of jobs. So what are the jobs that are going on filled? Are they jobs that people want to do? Or if they have choices, they may not want to do. So I think there's a bit of a reckoning and, and, and need for sort of deeper understanding and think that through. So that's why I think we really can't say it's, it's taking care of itself. It's not. It really needs to be much more intentional in terms of how we match talent to opportunity. That deeply resonates with me. It sounds like the key is really digging deep, right, and figuring out what populations and quality of jobs. I hear constantly from, um, and in terms of the president, talking about a family-sustaining wage, in terms of the mayor, family-sustaining wage high-quality jobs. As we're looking through this idea of creating this pipeline for high-quality jobs, for New Yorkers in particular, tell me a little bit about what your vision is around a high-quality job. How would we know what a high-quality job looks like and sounds like? And how do we create more of those for New Yorkers? A high-quality job is very subjective in some ways and very objective in other ways. So you need to be making enough money so you can live in the community that you want to live in, that you can make choices in your life, that you're able to support other family members as you need it. There's a lot that goes into that calculation, and I think there's good work that's happening in terms of what a living wage job is. So I think that's a super important and really making sure we're looking at that number and then where sort of some regulatory numbers are and how that compares. It's going to be an ongoing conversation here in New York City. It's an ongoing conversation nationally. 
there's also sort of, you know, what is your schedule? What are your hours? And really thinking that through. And if you have enough hours, but they're spread across seven days a week, that might be problematic. So it's really understanding scheduling. We know that, that that's an opportunity and a challenge in some places, in some occupations. And then we really need to think about what's actually happening in the workplace as well. Like you might be in a situation where you just don't want to be going into that situation. And then for some people, having the opportunity to work hybrid or remote is super important versus going into the office, whereas other people are like, I just want to go into an office. I want to make sure I want to do it. So I think there's all those factors that need to be taken into account when we talk about quality of work. Well, we've been talking about work a lot. Spend a lot of time doing it. That's why we should be talking a lot. It's a thing, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think the challenge is we're not necessarily calling the show innovations in workforce development. It's innovations in education. Abigail, what is the relationship between a K-12 system in terms of education and your vision and this world of work, right? Because we want to talk about education. We want to talk about preparing young people through education. But I have you here. You're talking about labor market participation and creating good jobs for New Yorkers and others. So tell me about this relationship between K-12, the world of work. What are we missing? What can we improve? So I think we all need to sort of step back and recognize we spend a lot of our lives working. I wasn't kidding, right? I mean, now people are working until they're much older than even a generation ago, in part because they want to, in part because they have to, depending on circumstance. So let's say we spend about 50 years of our lives working. If you're going to spend your life doing this, it's got to be because it's something you ideally want to do or you get paid really well and it enables you to support your family and have a choice filled life or ideally both. So when we talk about education, we have this sort of traditional notion where you go to school for the first 20 years of your life and then you go to work for the next 50. And and that's how we've set up our educational institutions and how we've set up how we think about the way education and work are related. So you go to school, you get trained, you get the fundamental key skills of literacy and whether it's math or English, you get, you know, some key problem solving skills. And then that creates a foundation. Then you go and get some more technical skills that might be specific to a profession. And then you go to work. And maybe it was true at one point in time. But I think if we talk about the lived experience that we all have is, first of all, the labor market's changing really quickly. So we all need to have lifelong learning. So we have to have education ongoing. And I subscribe to the belief that education doesn't just happen in the classroom. Learning happens everywhere. And we should recognize that, in fact, some of the best learning happens when it's sort of hands-on. And so therefore, if it's in a classroom, great. If it's in an office, if it's out in the field, that's also great. I think education is something that should be lifelong. So when we go and say you go to school for the first 20 years of your life and then you go to work for the next 50, I think that short changes people. I don't think it supports people in the longer term trajectories of their lives. And that's particularly true right now when we have a very dynamic labor market. So we're all going to need to get reskilled and rethink about what's going to happen because we don't know 10 years down the line. Like we don't know, like we're all going to be chatbots and we're going to be trying to control our chatbots. And, you know, but I'm just saying like, so we need to be able to have that ongoing education. What's so complicated about that, I think, is we put together a model, like you said, that's 20 years. You go to school, you get a high school diploma. And then your formal education, insofar as we as a society have invested collectively in our young people's ability to understand things about themselves in the world, that high school diploma kind of reflects the end of that in terms of societal investment. As you move on to your four-year institution, there are different funding mechanisms, not local, but usually state. 
right? Or federal. But I'm hearing a different vision from you. I'm hearing a vision where we come together in a continual investment in what it means to know things about ourselves in the world so that we can apply those things to a dynamic labor force. How does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think it's just lifelong learning. And I think that's part of the need to think about, particularly obviously post-secondary education, is how do we make sure our institutions are supporting lifelong? But I think the other point here is that we can't assume that education for education's sake is the best way to prepare people for careers. I think it's how much we can contextualize the learning in education into what are you going to be doing, you know, in, in your work life? What's important to you? How do you think about it? How do the skills that you're learning here in the classroom really translate to what needs to happen outside of the classroom? How can we get you outside of the classroom into a work environment and then help you process and think about, okay, what is it that I learned there? What did I like? What did I not like? Oh, now I understand why I need to really focus on my my writing skills, because in the workplace, I'm going to have to be writing memos and really having a persuasive argument for why I want to do X, Y, and Z thing. It's not just an abstract, oh, because my teacher said you have to write something. There's a lot more synergy if we braid together learning from work and getting students out of the classroom with classroom work. And that if we do that beginning as early as high school, if not earlier, research backs this up is you're actually more likely to do better in school and complete school because you understand why you're there. It also recognizes that, you know, educating young people is not just the responsibility of educators. It's the responsibility of all of us. Um, Mm. And so it really sort of recognizes that that responsibility is a shared responsibility. And there's certainly the skills and critically important role that educators play in understanding the pedagogy. But there's also making sure that Other adults are really thinking about how can I help support, educate, support educators in making sure young people are well positioned to launch into the labor market. Let's catch this idea that education for education's sake, because I feel like that's something there are conversations, national conversations. Some folks are are a little bit skeptical of the role of higher education as a national institution. How do you think about training versus education? What are the differences? What are the similarities? How do we understand that? We don't call it a training, for example, system. We call it an education system. What are your thoughts on that? And how do we think about that in, in our K-12 space? That's so interesting that you asked that, David, because my background, as you've shared, is I'm actually been working in community development, affordable housing, and impact investing until about eight years ago when, you know, I'd been working in it. And what we saw was that there was an increased need for affordable housing, particularly for low-income folks. And that wasn't just here in New York City. It was across the country. And it wasn't just in high-cost cities. It was in all sorts of places. And, you know, looked at housing. It's like housing's doing some really good work at building more affordable housing and preserving it. But we just couldn't keep up. Like, it's just mm-hmm. the, the demand keeps growing. And we see it every day here in New York City. And unfortunately, too many of our young people are also wrestling with homelessness. And and one of the challenges has been we've seen that the incomes have been really flat. And, and that's been true because the labor market has changed dramatically from 40 years ago. So if incomes are flat, you can't build enough affordable housing because the cost of housing goes up just as expenses go up, et cetera. So that gap gets wider and wider. So that's why I shifted over into talent development. And at the time, eight years ago, if you had asked me the difference between what's education and workforce, I'm like, why is there a difference between education and workforce? 
because fundamentally, we need to make sure our education system is supporting people's success in the workforce because that's their livelihood and that's how they're able to have choice-filled lives. And to do well in our complex labor market, particularly given where we see the jobs going, you know, with artificial intelligence and technology in general, where it really becomes about being human and where creativity and problem solving and connecting and leveraging technology to the benefit of X, Y, and Z, whatever your business nonprofit is doing, those are really human skills. And to me, that is education. So yes, you need to have training, just like, you know, in schools, we train people to, do we still train people to write in cursive? Not my kids, but it's, you it's know. a controversy. <laughs> so let's go back. We give them keyboarding skills, right? You yeah, have keyboarding yeah. skills, right? So in some ways, there's just this training and education needs to be braided together. I don't think it's beneficial to separate them as two separate things in the way that we have traditionally done it. You mentioned this thing really about the application of knowledge to skills. And now you just talked about braiding education and training. And the example you used before was really applying writing to tasks that had meaningful applications to students. And so I just want to sit with you on this because we have some fine folks in academia or educators. They would say the purpose of education is to refine one's mind, is to be able to reflect on the nature of truth and understand the world as it is. And to the extent that you could write a five-paragraph essay, that's great. Uh, but really, what we want you to do is be able to think. And so speak to those folks who are skeptical of the application of skill-based training. And this is a conversation with Common Core around content versus skill development that was raised up on there. But speak to the folks who are like, no, 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 Dave. Abby Joe is wrong. We are talking about education. We're talking about reading Rousseau. We're talking about reading the classics so that kids can think rather than do. You know, I laugh because I was a philosophy major undergrad because I know how to think. But do I remember all the Rousseau I read or, you know, the Kant I read, some of it. But do I remember when I was a summer intern and I had to write, I had to bring all those skills and problem solving skills to actually write a memo about how to address a particular challenge in terms of property rights on the west side of Manhattan. That's what I remember and like how I had to do it. So again, I, it's not because I don't think learning to think is super important. I think that is the most important work we do. That's what makes us who we are as humans. I think really thinking about how does that translate into how I'm going to be successful in life and make sure I can put a roof over my head, feed my kids and do more, take vacations give back to my community, support the opera, whatever it is that you want to do. It's because we've thought about thinking and doing at the same time. Just like we, we teach kids to sharpen their pencils. I think we still do. We encourage students to have their driver's license. It's just there's things that are important. And frankly, the research is just so strong that if you contextualize it, for young people, they're more likely to think more and think more deeply. So I don't, I, this is definitely a case where it's a yes and, or both are correct. And the fact that it's been sort of an either or, I think has been a disservice to everybody. So Abigail, you're coming out with the both and. The role of education is to know and to be. And to the extent that we can create experiences for young people that are relevant and engaging, they will both know more and do more. 
right? And I'm going to get to our next concept, but if you wouldn't mind, I read a recent report talking about the number of men dropping out of the workforce, speaking of doing more, and that's been increasing over time. And I wanted to think back about this notion of the historical role of vocational education and its relationship to gender and race and class and things like that. But as we move to this notion of knowing and doing, what are your thoughts of the labor market participation of men and its relationship to the K-12 space? Well, I don't know if it's that's knowing versus doing, but I do think, you know, there's a lot of complex factors that are probably going into why men aren't participating in the labor market in the way that they have in the past. And I wouldn't want to put my finger on any one particular thing about it. I think if we look in the classroom space, the grades and academic success in general, girls and women are graduating at at a higher rate than men are. So in that we have opportunities in the labor market that require degrees. There's a whole set of folks who are left out. That's a whole other question about whether degrees should be required or not, but that, so there's probably a level of frustration that happens on that. A lot of the jobs that don't require degrees, and I think mostly we're seeing the men who aren't participating in the labor market are maybe high school educated or may not. I think there's differential between college and high school education. So we're mostly seeing the chunk who don't have college degrees. So there's a whole set of jobs that aren't accessible because of the degree barriers. And then there's the jobs that are tough. And if you do enough of it, you know, by a certain point, it's just, I'm done. I can't do that. And then I think there's the earnings potential is that, as we said, earnings go flat. So there's a frustration. Like, I'm just not making enough money. And I have been told that I am supposed to be the breadwinner of my family. So then I think it gets into a lot of psychological issues. I think when we think about that in terms of education, in terms of young people, I think that's one of the reasons why we really have to move away from just having, I use a phrase, and I know a lot of schools don't do this, but like sitting in rows might not be the best way for everybody to learn. And and there's a lot of good research. Hands-on learning helps. So let's promote hands-on learning and let people roll up their sleeves and do that. And then they'll be more confident and more able because that speaks to their learning ability. We need to make sure that's built into the education system. That's a great point. And I think the kinds of education that we provide matter. And as we're looking at full employment and ensuring full employment for everybody in the population, I'm really resonant with the things that you're talking about around some of the complexity of the challenges, but also some policy recommendations around how we can organize education and skills-based education that identifies talent and identifies skill in different ways. And so speaking about identifying futures, I understand you recently finished the Future of Workers Task Force. And I know you led that task force and helped organize it on behalf of New Yorkers across the city. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that task force and some of the ideas that came out of there and what's it going to look like moving forward. Happy to, although I should turn the question back to you, David, because you did participate in the task force. So thank you very much for your time and contributions. And I please jump in if there's anything that I've missed. In August of 2022, the mayor signed an executive order 22, which really laid out the citywide objectives on talent and positions sort of saying, we believe talent is one of the cities, if not the city's most important asset. And it made explicit what the objectives are. And there's six in there. I won't go through all of them, but I will highlight a few. One is how do we make sure young people, by the time they're 25, launch into 
fulfilling, economically secure careers? And how do we make sure working New Yorkers are on living wage jobs? How do we make sure that employers have the talent they need? And really making sure that we are addressing any historic disparities. And part of that executive order also convened the Future of Workers Task Force as a time-bound sprint. And we launched in October of 22, and we had our last meeting in January. So we're just in the process of synthesizing all the information and recommendations. It consisted of about 80 external stakeholders from education, industry, unions, advocates, researchers, nonprofit providers. We tried to capture different types of industries, different boroughs, different parts of the education. So K-12 and also post-secondary. It was co-chaired by both chancellors, Chancellor Banks and Chancellor Matos Rodriguez. Additionally, Lizette Nieves from the Fund for the City of New York, Katie Galstigi from Goodwill of New York and New Jersey, and Carmen de Sibio from Ernst Young. And the idea here was we were really thinking about the future of workers from pre-K to lifelong. Yeah. And that's sort of unique in and of itself. So I just want to raise that up because traditionally workforce in our office and before I joined the office was known just as the Office of Workforce Development. And we intentionally added its Office of Talent and Workforce Development to recognize that you can't think of workforce development without thinking of pre-K, 12, all the way lifelong. So it intentionally had both chancellors on it as well as good representation. And it was interesting. There was so much material coming from that in terms of recommendations. At its core level, it said, we really need to think through what we need to do as a city, as big as we are, as complex as we are. How do we create the infrastructure that enables the sustained partnership between the public, private, and nonprofit sectors so that we can truly achieve the citywide objectives? Mm-hmm recognizing that not any one of us can do it alone. For all of us to do it together, it has to be because we have supportive infrastructure to put that in place. And also there's sort of recognition, we know a lot of what we need to do. It's just how do you do it at scale? How do you do it so it reaches every single young person, so it reaches every single New Yorker, regardless of their race, their the neighborhood they grow up in. And so we spend a lot of time saying, how do we move from a whole bunch of programs, and it often was said that we're program rich, but system poor, Yeah, to a system that truly works. Because there's been a lot of reports. That was the other thing I would say. A lot of reports on this and a lot of really good reports like that have good findings and even good recommendations. So we also really rolled up our sleeves and we said, as tempting as it is to say, this is the new program model that we're going to do more of. We really said, what do we need to put in place? All these reports that came out in the past, let's not redo them. Let's really understand why they didn't achieve the results they had hoped to. Mm-hmm. And so that led to us setting up a set of working groups. And so it was set up where there were five different working groups. And I won't go through all of them, but really sort of digging into some of those particulars and then trying to understand What are some of the things that we can work together going forward? So we looked very closely at where does public and private partnership happen? What's the taxonomy of those engagements so that we can make sure we're having strategic conversations about what we want to do long term and not just having programmatic conversations here and there? 
So we looked at how do we better leverage the Workforce Development Board, for instance, which is a federally mandated board that has industry educators, nonprofit providers that our office manages. How do we think about if we're truly believing that we want to breed learning and work together, how do we build on that? And where have we seen good success, not just here in New York, but elsewhere or historically? And so we really focused on apprenticeship. Why aren't we doing more apprenticeships? How many apprenticeships are we doing? And what can we as a city do to really increase significantly the number of New Yorkers in apprenticeship, the number of industries that have apprenticeship, and the number of occupations within those industries that have apprenticeship so that we're really setting up for the future in a way that's positive and builds on the assets of New York City. Let me take that idea of apprenticeships back to you. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, Abby Jo, is that I think education can be a very insular community. Oftentimes, teachers or educators go to public schools or go to schools, graduate from schools, learn how to be educators, come back into the schools, educate again. But the notion of apprenticeships, it doesn't take away from this idea of learning, right? It's about it's, learning. It's a different version of learning. And I just wanted to raise that up because you talked about this breeding of learning and workforce development and apprenticeships really reflect this. It used to be a very common thing across societies and across industries and across, but there is this move to professionalization. A good example here is my mother's from Haiti. She had her RN from Haiti because it was a license-based profession, right? As many professions are and used to be. And there's this move to BSNs, right? Bachelors of Nursing. And nothing wrong with that. But the licensure is still the same, right? It is, can you do these things and pass this test? And so I just, I want to reflect on this notion of the move to more abstract versions of learning, how that kind of juxtaposes around skill-based developments, licensures as demonstrations. I think engineering is a similar concept, right? You're a professional engineer when you have your PE. You're not an engineer when you graduate from your engineering degree. You have an engineering degree. Similarly, law, all these professions started with these certifications. So I just wanted to throw this idea to you in terms of the role of apprenticeships, the role of experience versus the abstract experience of learning through classroom conditions. So why apprenticeships? How is it different from what we care about in K-12? And what can we do better to prepare our New Yorkers and the rest of our country for the world of work? That's quite a question, David. I think, first of all, apprenticeship is marrying learning and work together. And it has to meet a certain set of conditions. As we talk about abstract learning, I think there's abstract learning that happens in apprenticeship. And I think there's skills-based learning that happens in school. So I think part of it, it goes back to our earlier part of the conversation is we sort of say it's like the skills or education or training or education. But in fact, it's both and. And in some ways, Apprenticeship, when it's done well, is both, right? And it's very much saying, okay, you're, you're going to learn about this in the classroom. You're going to apply it in the workplace. And you're going to come back and learn about it again. And then it's sort of the iterative nature back and forth. Or whether it's you go to a classroom where the person you're apprenticing really helps you teach it and think about the mastery of it. That got bifurcated probably with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And I think that we're, we're sort of going back to the future, right? Trying to bring those back together. And I think this is where other places have been very thoughtful about this. So one sort of anecdote I like to think about is in the, probably in the 80s, we got ding from the OECD, the Office of Economic and Community Development in Europe. The U.S. doesn't have enough university graduates to, to meet the needs of a future economy. 
And so we said, you know what, you're right. We have to go and have a lot more college graduates. We're going to get everybody to college and college graduates. Everybody's going to college. Everybody, college for all. And we can yeah. talk about the college for all. And so then Switzerland also got dinged at the same time. But Switzerland, because they have a 450-year history of apprenticeship, said, let's really understand what that means and what that looks like. And they went on a journey to modernize apprenticeship and really braid it in together with their academics. And so they've now created a system where 70% of the young people go into apprenticeship when they're 15 years old for two to four years. But that doesn't mean that they can't become a university college professor if that's what they choose because they've made it permeable. They can do apprenticeship and then you can get the equivalent of academic credit. You continue to go up and become a professor. Abigail, you're not suggesting we learn from Switzerland. We are New York City. We lead the world. I know, but we also adapt really fast. So the best from other places and do it better than anyone else. When I started my career in the public sector and communities, I was working on parks and I was working on the West Side Waterfront Park. And I put park in quotes because it was an abandoned waterfront that was falling into the water. And other places like Baltimore's Inner Harbor, Fangalot had beautiful waterfronts, and ours was not. And we learned a lot from them. And now our waterfront parks are the best in the world. And that's where our talent system is going to go, too, because we're going to look at places like Switzerland and say, no, we're not Switzerland, but there's some things we can adapt from there. Or look at, you know, what South Carolina's doing on apprenticeship and say, why are they doing, like, what are we going to learn from there? Mm -hmm. So that's where I think New York is what we're really good at is sort of taking tidbits from everywhere. And that's innovation and pulling it together and doing it better than anybody else. It sure is innovation. And I think one of the things you talked about is this notion of permeability. It's a bit of problem set in the education space, right? Like, I know we at the Urban Assembly have struggled to really conceptualize career and technical education, career pathways, and academic credits in a way that gives students permeability, right? And in fact, we just published a paper, let's measure what really matters. And we worked to struggle with this problem set and said, what are some ways that we can remove some of these policy constraints so that students can only learn in the classroom, right? Because right now, there are some policy situations that really incentivize a certain kind of learning. But that word permeability to me really resonates, right? Flexibility, choice, dignity of choice. Agency. So like people own their learning and education. And can connect it yeah. to something beyond the space itself, right? There, there's a path here and it, it matters how we get there. So we have some recommendations in that paper and we talk about things like increasing access to work-based learning and career connected learning experiences. We talk about operationalizing and how we look at school schedules so that yeah. outside learning works. And we talk about things like how we can bring folks into schools yep. who may have different kinds of experiences and different kinds of credentials to help facilitate the relationship between educators and their outside industries. I don't know if you had a chance to look at the paper, but I'd love to just get a sense of uh, what your thoughts are around the challenge of permeability, what we can do in New York State, New York City, and the rest of the country, and, and some of the recommendations that we're making here around the future of education and work-based learning. I think it's super important. And we're New York City to not use our city as a classroom, leave so much on the table. There's just, there's so much to be learned. Executing on this is always the challenge and operationalizing it. And I think that's where we have the good fortune of folks like Urban Assembly and other schools, which have been pushing the envelope on this and really thinking about 
okay, what are the barriers? You know, are they barriers just because there was all best intentions 20 years ago, but it's not relevant today? And really saying we need to encourage work-based learning and career-connected learning. And the research is there showing that it's actually better for the educational outcomes of students. And we know from talking to the teachers in the classroom that the ones that have really embraced this, it's easier for them to do their job too. So we shouldn't be making it difficult with some of the regulations that, again, best intentions. So I think that where the Urban Assembly paper comes in is really sort of showing that it's about modernizing to meet the demands and needs of students today, of educators today, and to really take advantage that we are in New York City. Like there are things we can do here. We can get students to go to the Natural History Museum, to go into the headquarters of J.P. Morgan Chase, to go see what it's like, you know, how you build a sewage treatment plant. Like there's just things that we can do that really help students understand, wow, I want to do that. I want to see that. I think that's the other thing that comes up is you say bringing people into the building. And one of the things that comes up over and over again in this work and how people get connected to careers and jobs, particularly what they want to do, it has so much to do with their professional network. Who you know is so important. And so if you're spending the first 20 years of your life in a classroom, it's very difficult to get those professional ties. And so by having career-connected work-based learning, having people come into the classroom so young people and older people can build those professional ties, they're more likely to link up into opportunities that they really want to do. And so, you know, we talked a lot about education and it used to be a lot about what you know, right? But now we have Google and all sorts of things so we can find out what we know. So we talk a lot about how you know or how you learn, super important. And I think that's been a huge leap in terms of how people learn. But we don't talk a lot about who you know. But yet I go into meetings all the time to talk about talent and workforce development. You know, we talk about programs, what skills-based programs or what apprenticeship. But I often start these calls, our conversations and say, all right, how do people in this room get the current job they have? or their first job? Was it because you applied through some system, because you were at a job fair, because somebody came and recruited you, or was it because it was somebody you know? And invariably, it's because it's somebody they know or one step away from somebody they know. And there's good research on this. Julia Friedland Fisher wrote a book, Who You Know. And so I think we need to pay attention to that. And if we just keep young people in classrooms and we don't bring other people into classrooms, we limit that significantly. So I think there's real opportunity and we need to make sure that any requirements for graduation, et cetera, really make sure we're thinking about that as much as what you know. I couldn't agree more. I'm thinking about a conversation I had with Ron Berger from EL Education, and he had raised up this notion that the students that he had taught were the firemen and the doctors, and they had projects where they went out to test the water in their community. And he lives up in Maine and there's not a central government. So people are like really about the life, right? Like the kids do well, that those are your neighbors or your partners. And this notion of trust, do we trust kids and young people to take their education seriously enough to use it for something important? Do we trust our system enough to develop experiences that are really worthy of young people's time so that when they are doing the writing and the thinking and the math, they're like, yeah, oh yeah, this is for a reason beyond itself. 
right? So I, I'm resonant with that. And I love that the city has a classroom notion and idea. And we're in New York, right? What are the classroom is better? If people rock. come from all over the world to be in New York to learn, to see. Just to hang out, right? <laughs> It's like when you're walking down the street and you see somebody looking up and you're like, oh, that is pretty cool. Thank you for looking up, tourist. Speaking of looking up and looking back, you know, this is about innovations in education, Abby Jo. We've talked a lot about workforce development, the connection between high quality experiences in the classroom and outside the classroom and young people's ability to contribute to their community. But let's talk about your ability and your contribution to public education. What has been the innovation that you're most proud of in public education and how did you get to it? The innovation that I'm most proud of, wow, that's a good one. There's a few pieces of this that I want to sort of highlight, but one is wherever we put sort of students at the table in the driver's seat, we've developed with different partners a student consultancy model where the students become the consultants and the client, whether it's a government or industry, puts a problem on the table that they're trying to solve. And the students say, okay, this is what we're thinking about. And they come back and really solve that problem. And so I think the more where we're doing that, that's been incredibly. And that's where it gets to what do we need to really connect adults with young people, but in a two-way fashion. So another one, we had a set of students that in that case, they were working for our, the organization here, here that I had founded. And they came on as student ambassadors. They brought them into our day-to-day work and they identified that you know, one of the things that we think is really important is how adults talk about us in our neighborhoods. And so they really developed an asset language guide for the adults about how to talk And it got into some really interesting, because sometimes a word is okay, and sometimes it's not okay. And a lot of the adults, and we've all brought adults into various places, need to know these things because it has huge impact on the young people. So to me, that's the larger piece is where it's made sure that the students were not just at the table, they were actively engaged in finding the solutions, in really mentoring and supporting the adults and helping to de- determine what the vision of the future is and really rolling up their sleeves and doing the work. So to me, that is work-based learning and it should be happening everywhere all the time. And if we can do more of that and make sure that our educational institutions are supporting that, particularly in K-12, students will be in a better position going forward. But we all will be because we will have better solutions, better ways of doing things. So work-based learning in schools, in real time, using student problems and solutions to help elevate not just our education system, but our communities and our societies. And this is your innovation, your impact, and your contribution to the education space. Just beginning, but yes, that's the one I'm very proud of today. Well, Abby Jo Siegel, it's been a pleasure to speak with you here today. I've learned a lot about the role of workforce development in the K-12 system. I love the conversation that we've had around how we braid these learnings from different spaces and different places into one coherent system for young people. On behalf of the Urban Assembly and Innovations in Public Education, have a great day, and I look forward to continued success from your office. Thank you. I look forward to continuing to partner with you in Urban Assembly. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Innovations in Education, where we bring education leaders who have made things work in the education sector. If you like this episode, please subscribe so that you can hear more great content around innovations in education. I've been your host, David Adams. Have a great day.